Welcome to My Two Cents with host J.R. Robinson and co-host Jessica Lonnie Rich. Are you on track for a secure retirement? If things go badly in the markets, will my nest egg still last? How do changing tax rules impact consumer savings and spending strategies? How do I know my financial advisor is competent and ethical? How do I organize my financial life? We'll answer important personal finance questions like these and so much more. And we'll do it in a way that makes a dry, arcane topic engaging and entertaining. And now, here are your hosts, JR and Jessica. Hello, and welcome to the second episode of My Two Cents. I'm Jessica Lonnie Rich, and my co host for the show is J.R. Robinson. He is the owner and founder of Financial Planning Hawaii. He's also the co founder of Nest Egg Guru. We're broadcasting you from beautiful Honolulu, Hawaii. Good afternoon, J.R. Good afternoon, Jessica. So, all is well here in Kaka'ako, where my office is. Um, I'm really actually really happy with the way our first show went out. I was obviously, everybody's a little bit nervous about that, but I felt it went pretty well. And I'm really hoping that we can keep that momentum going through today. Uh, But before we jump into it, what I want to do is I want to make sure that we give you the props that you deserve, because for our listeners, uh, Jessica has a wealth of experience in radio and TV show hosting and production. She is currently the host of Inspire You and Me on KWHE TV channel 14. And our local listeners may also know her from her position as the president and CEO of the Visitor Aloha Society of Hawaii. So thank you for all you do and for co-hosting My Two Cents. I'm grateful to have you on board with me because you are easy to talk to and you have a real gift for making the conversation flow. Oh, thanks, JR. I really appreciate your kind words. Well, this is really a fun time for me, too. Uh, but before I ask you about the topic for today's show, you mentioned that you're broadcasting from your office in Kaka'ako. Now, I'm sure that a lot of our listeners on the mainland have absolutely no idea where it is. Can you share with us a little bit about that neighborhood and also how Financial Planning Hawaii and Neste Guru ended up there? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think it's a good idea because I'm sure many of our listeners on the mainland are unfamiliar, like you said, with the, with the neighborhoods in Honolulu that are uh, outside of Waikiki. So uh, from 2014 to 2019, our offices were located in an area called Manoa, which is a, a quiet neighborhood in a, a beautiful valley. It's about three miles inland from Waikiki. So if you're on Waikiki Beach looking directly up into the mountains, uh, that's where we were. It's where the University of Hawaii campus is. And um, our office was located in a building called the Manoa Innovation Center, which served as an incubator for local tech startups. And that's how we got there with with Nest Egg Guru. But um, in 2019, the university took over the building, which sort of forced us to look for new accommodations. And um, almost exactly a year ago, we moved into our new digs here in Kaka'ako. And Kaka'ako is um, sort of a recently revitalized former industrial area, uh, like a lot of the rejuvenation that's going in a lot of um, cities around the country. And we're about three miles to the west of Waikiki, sort of further down the beach. Um, Our office is in a building that overlooks a subsection of Kaka'ako called Salt. And Salt is this neat little complex of trendy shops and restaurants. It's got a very much an artsy feel. Um, there are scores of really large scale, whimsical, surreal murals that are on almost every building wall in the neighborhood. And people just come just to, just to take the tour of all the wall art that's everywhere. It's, it's, really, it's really fascinating, actually. Really, I, I, love, I love that aspect of it. Now, um, Salt is also home to many popular restaurants. Um, Arvo is one of my favorites. It's featured in the New York Times a couple of times. Um, and it's right, right across the street. I have my lunch there just about every day. Moku Kitchen, Highway Inn. These are all great local restaurants. And the reason I mention them is that, of course, they've been absolutely hammered by the pandemic. So um, we chose our, our office location, obviously pre-COVID, because it was such a f- refreshing and vibrant place that had such great positive energy. And it's just, you know, filled with young people. And it's just a, a, a just a great place to just to be around. And these businesses are still going They're They're still trying to make it through, but um, we can't wait till this pandemic's over. So that these 
places can thrive again. It's just a, a great place. If you come, when Hawaii starts letting tourists back in again, um, we hope you guys will all swing by and check out uh, Kaka'ako and Salt at Kaka'ako. It's a, it's a, we're happy to be here. It's a great place and you guys should check it out too. Yeah, you are definitely in a trendy neighborhood. You mentioned the murals uh, in Kaka'ako. And before COVID, we would always see tourists uh, getting out of buses with all of their cameras and cell phones <laughs> and taking pictures of those beautiful murals in your neighborhood. So thank you for sharing that with us. And it just reminded me of what life was like before COVID and, and, and all the picture taking and people walking around in your very trendy neck of the woods. Would. So let's uh, let's get let's transition back now into the show. The title of our episode this week is "How the Sausage Is Made: An Insider's Guide to the Financial Advice Business." That sounds really exciting. <laughs> so why don't you tell our listeners what you have in store for us today, Jr. Sure. Well, um, you know, I, I we talked about this before. I, I love using catchy titles because obviously we want to attract listeners to our show. We're a new show. Uh, I definitely, however, do not want to disappoint those listeners who tune in. So as I said on our first show, I'm a zealous advocate for consumers. And that's a big part of the show uh, when, it comes to pers- when it comes to personal finance. And the purpose of this show is to educate our audience and to reduce some of the informational asymmetries that exist between financial, firm, for, for, excuse me, financial services firms and consumers, and also between advisors and their clients or consumers. So in today's show, we're, when, I, when I say we're talking about how the sausage is made, I mean helping our listeners understand how all of their counterparties in the financial services industry get paid and to shine a light on potential conflicts of interest in how they do that. So now don't get me wrong. I don't think there's anything wrong for charging uh, consumers for products and services. It's not, you know, it's not a nonprofit business, it's not a charity. Um, I expect to get paid for the things that I do, of course. Um, but the problem, however, is that financial services has long suffered from a real lack of transparency. And therein lies the rub. Um, it's actually a fairly complex topic. And we really have a, a great deal of ground to cover today. Um, so I'm going to, you know, Hope it doesn't seem rushed, but there's a lot in, a lot of talking that I need to do. But at the end, I hope that our, our our audience is better informed and feels like they're better able to make sound decisions. You mentioned it's a complex subject. Well, I think what's great about the way that you communicate, JR, is that you take all this wealth of information that you're going to share with us during the next hour, and you're going to break it down and make it understandable. So for many of the consumers to look behind, uh, you know, the the insider's guide to the financial advice business. Now, I know you like to educate your your listeners through storytelling, and I love your stories. Can you share with us the story about how you got started down the path of becoming a financial planner? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's it's actually a little bit bizarre, I guess. Um, I'll start by saying that I really could not have taken a more circuitous route to where I am today as the the owner of an independent financial planning firm and the owner of a software company. The the story of how I got started over 30 years ago is um, it's it, well it's interesting. I'll just I'll just tell it I guess. Um, but it's uh, the reason I want to share it is it's it's sort of an example of how the diversity of my experiences sort of makes me qualified to speak on the subject today. So um, so here's here's my origin story as it were. So. Um, I mentioned in the last show, I graduated from Williams College in Western Massachusetts and very rural part of the state um, in 1998. And at that time, I was a double major in geology and economics. And those of you who turned in the first show heard me explain just how foundational my economics experience was in shaping my financial planning career. However, when I was an undergraduate in college, my passion was actually to become a geologist. And econ was really just sort of my plan B. So my first job out of college, I was actually working for as an environmental consultant for a consulting firm outside of Boston. And after about six months, I was finding that my passion for geology was actually waning. And I realized that if I was actually going to be able to make a decent living at it and to be successful in the field, I probably was going to have to go back to school and get a a PhD. And um, I really wasn't down with that at the time. At the time, I felt like I'd had enough school. So... um, Many of my friends from Williams had gone on to work in things like commercial banking and investment banking. So I thought maybe I should pivot to that too. 
Now, the only problem was that I'd been preparing for a career as a geologist, and I really didn't have any idea of what those fields really were. And um, honestly, I was very much uh, a country mouse. I, I, my only exposure to corporate finance, honestly, was the movie Wall Street. <laughs> which had come out in 1987. And so armed with that wide body of knowledge, I responded to a recruiting ad that I'd seen posted on the bulletin board at Bentley College, which is uh, where I was taking some night courses in accounting. And the ad was from a company called Hibbard Brown. Now, the company represented itself as an elite, excuse me, an elite boutique investment banking firm. And I was said, this is exactly what I'm looking for. I was delighted to have the opportunity to interview. And to my surprise, they actually called me in. So um, the company's office was located in an office park uh, north of Boston in Wakefield, Massachusetts. And um, I remember walking into the building and I was so impressed that they had this big granite waterfall in the atrium. And it was actually sort of intimidating to me. And it made me think how important the place was. So uh, the interview was, uh, was sort of a tense, high-pressure affair. I really wasn't even prepared for that. Um, the two lead managers explained that Hibbert Brown did investment banking and market making for what they described as low-priced emerging growth companies. Now, I, as I would later come to learn, what that meant was that they specialized in high-pressure telephone sales of penny stocks of worthless companies. Um, but if, you, and if you've ever seen the movie like... Uh, Boiler Room or, or Wolf of Wall Street, that's mm -hmm. exactly what it was like to work at Hibbert Brown. It was a boiler room. So um, I was told in the, in the interview that um, the firm would take a chance on me. Um, I should feel grateful for that opportunity. I had six weeks to study for and pass the Series 7 exam so I could get my securities licenses. And if I didn't pass it on the first try, don't bother to come back. And uh, what I also came to learn was that the firm specialized in recruiting naive rubes like me to come in to fuel its cold calling engine to pawn their worthless stocks. So, um, yeah, like I said, I was a country mouse and all of this went right over my head. So um, on my first day after passing this Series 7, I, I was given my cubicle and um, like just like in the movie Boiler Room, there was no chair because like, you weren't allowed to sit down when you were cold calling. And they gave me a sales script and a big book of phone numbers that I was supposed to use to start gathering prospects. Now, I'd seen the movie Wall Street. So at first I felt like, OK, I'm like Charlie Sheen's character, Bud Fox in the movie. And I'm out there prospecting in search of landing a whale client like Gordon Gecko. And um, a, a few weeks in, I actually sat in on the first sales meeting that they had and they prepped me up for their next, quote, hot IPO. Um, and for any less listeners who saw the cult classic firm, Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, um, there's this iconic scene in which Alec Baldwin stands up in front of the sales force and completely belittles them. He shows them his watch and tells them how, how much more his watch costs than their cars did. And he goes on to tell the salesman that they're having a new sales contest. And the first prize in the contest is a fancy new car. And that second place is a set of steak knives. That was exactly the penny stock sales environment at Hibbert Brown. Oh my goodness. And it was, I mean, it's, it was just Wow. Fascinating. Now, it, surprisingly, I'm 22 years old. I don't have a clue. It's, it, it took me actually about three months to figure out that Hibbert Brown was actually not at a legit investment banking firm. And um, I was pretty clueless. But um, for what it's worth, several years later, I ended up um, providing testimony against the firm and uh, helped the regulators shut them down. So, um, but, uh, but that was my first introduction to financial services. And, it's, and honestly, as miserable as it was, it was a valuable life experience. And without it, I'm pretty sure I never would have found my way into financial planning. So when I quit Hibbert Brown, I was unemployed and I was broke. And so I was forced to move back home with my parents. Um, they weren't that clean, keen on having, like most parents even today, um, on my hanging around in my underwear all day trying to figure out where, what I was going to be when I grew up. So they set up a meeting with a family friend who was the branch manager of a local A.G. Edwards office. And A.G. Edwards was, at that time, it was a respected brokerage firm. And it's since been merged out of existence. But because I already had my securities license and I already had a little experience cold calling, I was hired and uh, enrolled in the A.G. Edwards sales training program. So um, I was at, and as an investment broker, I was still just a salesman, uh, but a little bit more respectable salesman. Uh, but at that time, financial planning wasn't really even established as a as a field of expertise. In fact, the only people I knew at that time who, who used the term financial planner were actually insurance agents and they were using it to help them sell sell products and and. As, as financial advisors. So that's the intro. Anyway, that's my origin story. 
wow, what a story. <laughs> that is amazing. And I'm just thinking of all the training you must have gotten. So you told us how you got into the investment business and you're going to share with us a little little bit and then after the break we'll get more into it how you actually got to become a financial planner sure so um as i was slowly building up a client base at ag edwards and and at that time was done mostly by i was cold calling people to sell them tax-free municipal bonds which at that time were paying seven or eight percent interest obviously impossible to get these days but um i realized that the products that we were selling were really just commodities and you could get those anywhere. Um, but th that as, as I was growing more knowledgeable about other related services, things like IRAs and small business retirement plans, I was interacting with estate planning attorneys and that sort of thing. I realized that accumulating this mental database of, of tax rules and business structures that wasn't really common public knowledge, but it was a way for a young kid like me to, to, to be able to set myself apart and to actually start to try to add value to my clients. And the more I started to learn, the more that actually fueled my passion to learn more. And that was really, that's the foundation of financial planning. So um, in 1996, uh, I got married and uh, moved from Massachusetts to my wife's hometown in Honolulu. That's how I got here. Um, now, A.G. Edwards didn't have an office here at that time. So I ended up hooking up with Smith Barney, which was a big firm at that time. And um, are we doing, are we still are we approaching break time? And you, and you are sharing with us how you got to Hawaii. And we're going to hear a lot more about your transition into becoming a financial planner right after this. Thanks for keeping me on track. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Nest Egg Guru makes affordable software for financial advisor websites to help advisors better educate and engage with their clients. Consumers today no longer wish to receive book-length so-called financial plans that they'll never read after leaving their advisor's office. Instead, they want to be educated and to participate in the planning process. The three Nest Egg Guru planning apps help address your greatest financial fear. If things go badly in the markets, will I still be okay? Tell your financial advisor to step up his or her game at nesteggguru.com. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. listening to my two cents we'd love to hear from you on the program today call in to 1-866-472-5788 that's 1-866-472-5788 if you'd rather send an email the email address is info at fphawaii.com now back to my two cents here again are your hosts jr robinson and jessica lani rich I'm Jessica Lonnie Rich, and we're listening to J.R. Robinson, financial planner. And the theme of our show today is How the Sausage is Made, an Insider's Guide to Financial Advice Business, the Financial Advice Business. And before the break, J.R., you were sharing with us how you got to Hawaii. And there are so many different types of financial institutions and platforms that exist. So let's get into the meat of the discussion today. And we all see advertisements online and on TV about commission-free trading. And you're going to share with us about that right after you tell us how you became a financial planner. So let's deal with that first. Sure. Yeah. And um, so, as you know, we're new to this radio show format. And um, so thank you for helping me out as uh, as the commercial break was approaching. But um, I tend to be long-winded, so I expect more of that. But <laughs> thanks for keeping me on track. So as I explained, yeah, um, I, got, I moved to Hawaii, got um, on with Smith Barney. They helped me, um, they encouraged me to get my um, investment advisor representative license with the, basically license with the SEC. And that's a requirement for any financial advisor who wants to hold himself out to the public as a financial planner. The SEC regulates all investment advisors and the subsect of that group that are our financial planners. Now, at the same time, I also enrolled in the Certified Financial Planner Prep Program, which is a popular program where a lot of people get the CFP designation. And um, 
I took that and it was started in the mid 1990s, around 1996. And I did it through the College for Financial Planning. And I completed the program. But when I was doing it, I was so turned off by the insurance sales bias and the fact that the actual curriculum of it was much more basic than what I actually got in college in my econ program that I actually ended up never sitting for the CFP exam. It's a, you'll, we'll talk about it in further episodes, the ramifications of that. But um, I went on to spend seven years at Smith Barney, which then became Citigroup, seven more years with Wachovia Security, which became uh, Wells Fargo. And all three of those companies, A.G. Edwards, Smith Barney Citigroup, and Wachovia uh, Wells Fargo were all large financial institutions. They all exposed me to different corporate cultures. But by 2010, I'd had enough of corporate bureaucracy, and I really wanted to be in an environment where I could put my clients first. So I established my own financial planning firm, Financial Planning Hawaii. So again, sorry for being long-winded, um, but uh, what I want to do, as, as, you, as you mentioned, is to, is to get talking about um, the different spaces uh, and, and how the sausage is made in the DIY investor space and also in the financial advice space. So um, let's just get get right into that now. Um, let's and, and basically the idea is how do these firms make money and what are the conflicts of interest that are involved there? So, um, so in this first segment, we're going to um, sp- focus specifically on the brokerage firms that serve the do-it-yourself uh, investor market and how they make money. And now I'm sure when I say that there are probably people in our audience who are rolling their eyes and they're going to be some listeners who maybe have this preconceived notion that this is the part of the show where the crotchety old condescending financial planner tells his listeners that all the reasons they should hire a financial planner instead of investing on their own. I want to assure you, this is not that. Let me be perfectly clear. The purpose of this show and the purpose of this discussion is to shed light on how all of these firms make their money. And it is for the benefit of our DIY investor listeners um, who may not know how the sausage is made in that segment. So in the final segment of today's show, I'm going to talk about how financial advisor get, advisors get paid. And I promise you, I will have some very pointed comments about that space. Um, so uh, in getting started, as I mentioned at the beginning of the show, a problem with the financial services industry is that it's not always as transparent as it should be in its dealings and how it markets itself to the public. So let me begin with what I would call exhibit A, talk, and I call it talk to Chuck. And it's in reference to a longtime advertising campaign from the company that was actually the pioneer and still is the leader in the DIY brokerage space, and that's Charles Schwab. So for decades, a popular element of its marketing campaigns was to steer investors away from financial advisors to save money on commissions. And for years, Schwab would tout its minuscule $5.95 trading commissions um, to attract people there. Now, fast forward to today, most firms charge zero trading commissions, but we'll, we'll get to that later. Now, in terms of Schwab's approach, if you think about it intuitively, if that was the firm's only source of revenue, it would maybe be just enough to cover their postage and printing costs of client statements and tax documents at that time, probably not enough revenue to support tens of thousands of employees at its home offices and the rent and office space costs for all the branch offices and maintaining compliance. It's just you know, it's hard to get there with 595 trading commissions or with today's free trading commissions. So um, now as a point of interest, I should also mention that the Charles Schwab's namesake, Charles Schwab himself, as everybody probably knows, is a billionaire. Now, I have no idea how many homes the, the man owns around the world, um, but I do know that he's got a really sweet crib on the island of Hawaii, and that includes his own private golf course. Now, I honestly have a tremendous respect for Charles Schwab. I don't begrudge the man for making a fortune, but to borrow a classic line from the Western movie, The Outlaw Josie Wales, don't piss down my back and tell me it's raining. So obviously there's got to be a little more juice to fuel that gig than just the paltry commission revenue, right? So in fact, there are actually many sources of revenue for all brokerage firms, including Charles Schwab. And so uh, for instance, if the brokerage firm serves as a market maker in certain stocks. That is, they profit from whenever somebody buys or sells a stock, they make a profit on the difference between the bid and the ask price of that. So that's one way that they can earn profits. If firms are too small to have those market making operations, they instead sell their trades to firms that are market makers. And this is known as payment for order flow. And that's also a a nice, you know, it, it, each one of those little trades may be mere pennies that they make from it, but when you're processing millions and millions of transactions, that's millions and millions of pennies, and that's obviously real money. So um, that's a big source of revenue for, for most brokerage firms. 
Um, now, brokerage firms can also make money from things like asset-based fees on their own packaged products, um, from markups of bonds that they sell uh, from their inventories, from distribution fees for selling bank CDs, revenue sharing agreements with mutual fund companies. Um, for companies that won't share revenue with brokerage firms, they can still offer their products for sale, but they may actually tack on a separate ticket charge, which is effectively a trading commission. So. These are all different ways that brokerage firms have to make money. Maybe one of the biggest ones that uh, people aren't aware of is the interest that they earn on margin loans. And that's actually a big contributor to brokerage firm revenue. So if, um, if account holders use the securities in the portfolio as uh, collateral, they can borrow more money and invest more. And the interest that they pay on that borrowed money is profit to the bottom line of the trading firms. So at the end of the day, the nominal commission charges that we see or the zero commission charges that we see, see today really aren't much, aren't, are relatively insignificant. And these days, you know, advertising driven competition has compelled pretty much all of the firms to eliminate trading comp, uh, commissions on the sale of um, stocks and options trades entirely. So the astute among you now uh, may be thinking to yourselves, all this information about how these firms make money may be interesting, but how is this taking a big bite out of my wallet? I mean, I don't really care how much they make money uh, as long as I'm not paying anything, right? So here's a scoop. And this is the message that I want to impart. Um, the profits of the brokerage firms you are using increase the more you trade and the more assets that you place with them and the more you borrow. So as such, the trading firms that these platforms provide to the DIY investment community are specifically designed to encourage you to trade more and to borrow more to enhance your returns. Now, unfortunately, there's also abundant academic research that shows that increased trading and increased margin activity is actually inversely correlated to investment success. Not always true. There Obviously, there are exceptions to it, but that's a pretty well-established academic principle. Now, this fact, of course, in no way deters the brokerage firms from spending millions of dollars on advertising campaigns designed to make investors feel that they're missing out on crazy wealth opportunities if they're not day trading and if they're not leveraging their portfolios to the hilt. In short, the dream that the DIY brokerage firms are selling is often very difficult, different, excuse me, not difficult, different from the reality of the experience. So um, now... Uh, another thing about the um, DIY in investment space is, um, excuse me, I get a drink of water here, is that the industry, and actually the advisory industry too, is all, almost always in a state of um, disruption. And it, it, it's at least true in the 30 plus years that I've been playing in the sandbox. So for instance, um, Schwab and Vanguard and Fidelity were early pioneers and they were disruptors in the 1970s and 80s when they set out to challenge the pricing power of the full service brokerage firms. And then we had the rise of the internet in the 1990s, bought trading to actually people's home computers and created space for companies like Ameritrade and E-Trade to emerge to create day trading platforms. And they also, um, at the same time, those companies also introduced entertaining marketing campaigns. I don't know if you remember, but there was Stuart from the mailroom who traded his way up to owning his own private helicopter and buying the entire company. And there was E-Trade had this um, talking baby that boasted about how easy it was to make money raking it. There's, there were really cute campaigns. And this sort of campaigns even um, uh, uh, continue today. So interestingly, though, the rise of these firms paved the way for financial planners like me to escape the clutches of the big brokerage firms. So when the dot-com bubble burst in early 2000, a big chunk of the day trading community pretty much just dried up and blew away. And these firms were sort of staring at an existential threat to their continued operations. And most of the large DIY brokerage firms were really smart and they pivoted and they began opening up their trading platforms to independent financial advisors. But instead of forcing people like me to change the way we did business and try to get us to trade more. Instead, they offered us this state-of-the-art open architecture platforms and clearing and custody services in return for paying them a small asset-based fee. So to put this into perspective, a financial advisor, for example, would say $250 million in client assets might pay 10 basis points or one-tenth of 1% for access to, um, I'll make it up, but say it's TD Ameritrade's trading platform. That one-tenth of 1% one actually about, amount, would amount to about $250,000 of revenue to the firm on top of whatever revenue they might also make from just the incidental 
trading that we do in, in their other standard profit centers. So the lure of, of uh, the luring of independent brokerage firms and advisors to utilize their own tra- um, trading platforms has been a, a huge boon to the traditional DIY brokerage uh, business. And it's been a big blow to the traditional old school brokerage firms, such as the ones I talked about that, that gave me my start. So um, now the reason I mention all of this is that today there are new disruptors entering the space and the most recognizable, these are just interesting stories. So the, the most recognizable of these, these days is um, uh, Robinhood and Robinhood, um, their most trumpeted value proposition is that they are democratizing the trading space by making all trading free and by having no account minimums. And so um, in a twist, Robinhood has also issued some of the traditional profit centers, making the margins much tighter. Uh, They don't profit from cash management and they actually pay their uh, customers interest, not much these days, but on cash that they had there where competitors don't. So um, essentially their primary source of revenue is limited to payment for order flow and margin interest. And um, um, while its service offerings are much more limited than its peers, it has the advantage of being almost entirely app-driven, which means that Robinhood needs far fewer employees to run its business. They've got 10 million active users, but only about 1,200 employees versus the tens of thousands that you might have at, um, at Charles Schwab or Fidelity or the others. Now, one of the other things that they're doing that's sort of interesting is to encourage people to trade more, they've sort of incorporated the um, techniques into the app that are used by the casinos in Vegas. So anytime somebody uh, enters a trade, for example, you might get a digital confetti show or something like that. It's just interesting how they're doing it. Um, Anyway, I think we're running out of time in the segment, but I hope as you can tell that I find all this stuff to be absolutely fascinating and it's interesting how it's changing all the time. And all of this, I hope, actually is useful. In I know I'm long-winded, but I hope it's useful in, in shedding light on how the sausage is made in this aspect of the financial services space. Yes, it is. And you've been speaking about brokerage houses and brokerage firms, but let's lift the curtain and let's talk about how fine, more other financial institutions, for example, those that hold client accounts, make their money. Um, sure. So actually, I mean, the DIY brokerage firms all hold client accounts. They are brokerage firms. It's just that they have, as well, I'll explain in a minute, they actually have um, the difference between them and the, and the old school brokerage firms is that the old school brokerage firms have one different distribution channel. And that's actually the, the channel that is um, the, the sales force, the, the financial advisors who go out and actually get clients and bring clients to the firm. That's the fundamental difference, but they're all broke. They're all brokerage firms. They all uh, offer yeah. custody of client assets. Um, you know, you wouldn't, you wouldn't have, you know, J.R. Robinson be the custodian of your account. Uh, it, those assets need to be held at a big financial institution. So they're secure and they're heavily regulated. So all of those firms provide that, but the difference between the DIY space and the financial advice space is that just different distribution channel. You've got advisors who go out and bring clients in. I'm glad that you uh, explained the difference between between the two, because I think it, it's uh, confusing to the average consumer. And you actually made it clear today the differences between both of them. So thank you for that. And what we're going to be doing is in the next segment, uh, JR, you want to share with us uh, what you're going to be what we're going to be learning from you. Yeah, so um, the next segment is, um, I saved it for last because one, it's the space that I know the best and because it's um, actually a little bit more complicated, but it's, it's going to be the, the, meat and, the meat of it is going to be how financial advisors get paid and how those firms operate and, and you know, exposing the conflicts of interest in different models. That's, that's our, our topic for um, after, the, after the break, which I think is probably coming up pretty soon. I think that's a great topic, how financial advisors are, are paid, because you have to, financial advisors have to be paid too. And uh, of course, a consumer is very interested in, in how they're paid. And we're going to hear a lot more about that coming up right after this. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Nest Egg Guru makes affordable software for financial advisor websites to help advisors better educate and engage with their clients. Consumers today no longer wish to receive book-length so-called financial plans that they'll never read after leaving their advisor's office. 
Instead, they want to be educated and to participate in the planning process. The three Nest Egg Guru planning apps help address your greatest financial fear. If things go badly in the markets, will I still be okay? Tell your financial advisor to step up his or her game at nesteggguru.com. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. You are listening to My Two Cents. We'd love to hear from you on the program today. Call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send an email, the email address is info at fphawaii.com. Now, back to My Two Cents. Here again are your hosts, J.R. Robinson and Jessica Lonnie Rich. J.R., before the break, you gave our listeners some really interesting insight into the business side of do-it-yourself investing and also how brokerage firms that cater to that segment try to encourage trading behavior that is going to boost their bottom lines. Now tell us how the sausage is made. How is how is money made in the financial advising space? And how do people like you as financial planners get paid? Yeah, so this is this is actually the uh, the fun segment of the program for me because it's obviously the space in which I operate. And um, I, because I've been doing it for so long, I, I kind of knew where all the skeletons are hidden too. So uh, it's, it's uh, in terms, it's, it's also a very important space I'm, because in terms of the assets, the size of the financial advisor market actually dwarfs the DIY space. And it involves literally trillions and trillions of dollars of consumer savings. So as you can imagine, when it comes to trusting someone to help you manage your life savings, it's really, really important for consumers to understand who does what, how they're regulated, and what the conflicts of interest are. And so that's now that's this segment. Um, now, as a as a point of clarification, when I'm using the term financial advisor. I am broadly and generically referring to the group of advice giving folks that includes brokerage firm sales reps, representatives of investment advisory firms, insurance agents, and financial planners. So financial advisors covers that whole, that whole group. It's just a generic term. Um, at the firm level, you have several different types of brokerage firms that offer product distribution platforms and account custody as they hold the assets and clearing services, which means they provide the confirmation statements and that sort of thing. Um, And in the U.S., there are around 4,000 brokerage firms, and they're regulated by the Financial Industry Regulatory Association, or FINRA. Now, these include traditional big brokerage firms, the names you probably all know, Merrill Lynch, Wells Fargo, UBS, Morgan Stanley. Those are the, the big four. Um, and they also include regional brokerage firms, tons of small, small much smaller brokerage firms, um, and DIY brokerage firms. So many of the brokerage firms in this space are, um, are also owned by banks or insurance companies, but there are also some stand- many standalone entities as well. Now, it's important to understand that all brokerage firms, including those we were talking about in the DIY space, serve the function of product distribution. That is, they offer a medium for purchasing stocks and bonds and mutual funds and options and a slew of other types of securities. And a fundamental difference between traditional brokerage firms and the DIY firms we were discussing is that traditional brokerage firms employ armies of client-facing brokers who who actively, proactively go out and bring clients to the firm. So this represents an entirely separate distribution channel, if you you will. to the extent that consumers are willing to pay more for these one-on-one relationships, the commission revenue that these reps are able to generate from the sales of securities represents a high margin business for the firm. And it's this business that the DIY firms um, have been chipping away at and chipping away at rather successfully uh, for decades. However, um, in addition to the retail brokerage side of the business, there are more than 20,000 registered investment advisory firms uh, that are regulated by the Securities Exchange Commission. And also uh, the smaller of them are, and the, which actually is the majority of them, are regulated by, by the, at the individual state level by the state securities commissioners. 
Now, the advisors who work for these firms must be licensed with the SEC, and they are referred to as investment advisor reps or IARs. And as I mentioned earlier, this segment includes financial planners. Um, So in general, customers of these firms tend to explicitly pay for advice rather than just access to products. And the fee structure may vary from firm to firm, but common types of fee structures for for, um, investment advisor reps include asset-based compensation, hourly billing, flat rate fees, and subscription fees, which is sort of a a newer model that's um, that's trying to take hold. So um, not to make things more confusing, but nearly 85% of all financial advisors in the U.S. are dual registered as both brokerage sales reps and as investment advisor reps. And most of the brokerage firms in the U.S. also have separate affiliated registered investment advisory firms or RIAs. So um, beyond that, insurance companies and their sales agents also represent another class of product distribution. And with the exception of variable life insurance products and annuity products, most of the insurance agents are, um, insurance companies are, excuse me, insurance products are, are not considered securities um, and they're products that are sold and typically with opaque commissions. So um, the marketing and distribution of these products are generally regulated at the state level by the state insurance commissioners. So you've got all these different regulatory bodies. Um, now, to make this, confu- this discussion as confusing as it can possibly be, um, it's common for financial advisors to hold a brokerage license with FINRA, an investment advisory license with the SEC, and a state insurance license. And that these three separate hats with three different sets of rules um, and regulations governing consu- consumer disclosure and protection. So it's, it's a lot to keep track of. And if you think that consumers are clueless about the different standards that are applied, um, you'd be absolutely right. So that's sort of the platform for speaking today. Wow, JR, that is a lot of information to digest. And since the show is called My Two Cents, can you give us your opinion, which type of advisor is best for consumers? Absolutely. So, um, and it it is clearly a lot of information to digest so far. And I will confess that I have actually fairly dramatically oversimplified the discussion to accommodate both the time constraints of our program and to also not go too far over the heads of our listeners. But this does at least get us to the part of the show where I get to share my two cents on financial advisor compensation and conflicts of interest. So, um, right. (laughs) Now, (laughs) that's actually the fun part. So the (laughs) ethics of financial compensation has been a hot topic in the popular press and in the industry circles um, that we're in for for decades. Um, Now, advocacy for one model over another is often portrayed in black and white and moralistic terms that do not always jibe with the economic reality. So to borrow a term from uh, one of my favorite books, the best-selling book, Freakonomics, The quote is, morality is the way we think the world should work, while economics explains the way it actually does work. And that's sort of my background in economics is uh, that's what what made me interested in it. Um, Now, as I mentioned in our first show, I'm passionate about just about every aspect of the business that I'm in, um, but this is one of my favorite topics. And in 2007, I wrote a paper for the Journal of Financial Planning titled, Who's the Fairest of Them All? A Comparative Analysis of Financial Advisor Compensation Models. And what made this paper different from from much of the other popular rhetoric is that I actually applied an economics lens to the topic. Now, to borrow another quote from Freakonomics, quote, incentives are the cornerstone of modern life and understanding them or often ferreting them out is the key to solving just about any riddle. And it goes on to end the quote by saying the conventional wisdom is often wrong. So what I did in my paper and in several follow-up articles that I've written is to consider the incentives or conflicts of interest in all of the primary advisor compensation models that I referenced earlier. So my somewhat controversial conclusion was that contrary to popular belief, all compensation models have conflicts of interest. And understanding the conflicts is needed to help consumers decide which model or models may be best for him or her. And it may be uh, that some combination of the models is actually the most suitable or advisable uh, a way to go. So um, now this this stands very much in stark contrast to the mantra of certain 
financial planning organizations that are portraying all commissions as evil and that proclaim that hourly or flat fee planning is morally superior and conflict free. So allow me to explain. Uh, on the surface, commission-based compensation is easy to vilify because the conflict of interest is obvious. The advisor gets paid more, the more he encourages his client to trade. On the other hand, there's actually been some research published indicating that commission-based brokerage reps tend to generate less revenue than advisors who charge some form of fee. And this may be attributable to the fact that the advisor's search costs for obtaining new clients gives them an incentive to not abuse the clients that they've got. So um, a problem with the commission-based model, however, is that not all commissions are disclosed. For instance, insurance products, it's, it's they're typically sold with opaque commissions, which makes it really difficult for the consumer to assess the size of the salesperson's conflict of interest. So in my opinion, and I'll put it a different way, if, I, if you're presented with an insurance product that's got a $10,000 commission and one that's got a $1,000 commission, and you don't know the difference between the two, it's obviously there's an informational asymmetry there that creates a problem. So in my opinion, it's the lack of transparency that's the greatest flaw in the commission model rather than the model structure, the payment structure itself. So for about the last two decades, there's actually been a migration largely because of this negative perception of commission-based trading away from commission-based brokerage compensation to asset-based fees under a registered investment advisory fee agreement. So um, in fact, it's not uncommon for these firms, and I, I saw an ad, for, ad on TV for this just the other day, um, to the, the firms will go out and proclaim, and this is completely false, but they'll complain, they'll, they'll say that there are no conflicts of interest in this model because the advisor gets paid more if the account value rises and they get paid less if the account value falls. So our interests are in, aligned. In reality, this is extremely misleading and it overlooks the how the incentives in the model really work. For instance, an advisor may have a clear incentive to discourage his client from taking money out of an asset-based advisory agreement to say, buy real estate or pay down debt, even if those might be really things that are in the client's best interest. So it's, it's a very real and significant conflict of interest. And really, it's one that needs to be exposed and that consumers should recognize. So um, now in recent years, there's also been um, almost a religious fervor among certain financial planning organizations for abandoning both commission-based models and asset-based compensation models in favor of flat fee or hourly planning um, as so-called conflict-free alternatives. Now, trust me, these models are every bit as conflicted as the other two models. It's just that the conflicts are actually different. So with a flat fee planning model, the, the financial planner has an incentive to actually do as little work as possible to get his or her fee. It's, it's called shirking. Um, if a plan is taking longer than anticipated to complete, the advisor has a real incentive to do whatever they can to wrap it up quickly and to cut corners so it doesn't take up more of their time. Um, and, uh, you know, so the ad adoption uh, of these um, two models is, um, or of the adoption of the fee model is obviously there's conflict of interest in that too. So um, now looking at the hourly fee-based model, this is one of my favorite ones because this is um, presented as the, the pure conflict-free uh, model in the future for the planning professions. Everyone should be charging hourly. And it's really ironic because the that fee model is, um, if you look at uh, the legal profession, for instance, it's actually the most vilified compensation model in, um, in, in the law. People hate paying hourly billing in the legal world. And the reason for that is that the, obviously in our world or in the legal world, the financial planner or the attorney has an incentive to have a heavy pencil. That is to bill as many hours as they possibly can. Um, and conversely, a huge problem in the financial planning world is that hourly building billing also makes consumers reluctant to spend the time that's necessary to share all of their information to the financial planner to help us do a good job in, in, in you know, assessing their and helping them reach their goals. So that, you know, that conflict of interest is, is actually, in my opinion, it makes it the most conflicted model. I used to have hourly planning as a model in my practice, but I eliminated it because I, in order for me to do a good job, I wanted the, the, the client to feel like they can share everything with me so that I can have the complete picture. And um, you know, without it, if you don't have the complete story, you really can't do a great job. So um, that's the, the one that is viewed as the most moralistic, the, the 
most pure model, but actually, in my opinion, it's the most conflicted. If you have to pick one that's there, I'll have conflicts. I would say that's the most conflicted model. So um, I actually have a lot more to say on this topic, but I, I actually think we're going to be running out of time fairly soon. So um, I, I fear not. I, I will be deep we'll be digging deeper into this topic in um, our future uh, shows. In the next show, I, I really want to explore this, the ethics of financial advisor compensation uh, more. And um, so uh, anyway, long-winded explanation, but that's, that's my two cents on how, how the sausage is made on the advice side of the business. Now, JR, most consumers don't know how much the hourly rate is for a financial planner. And since you brought it up, can you share with us how much is it per hour? It varies. It varies from advisor to advisor and firm to firm. Um, some advisors may charge as little as uh, $100 an hour up to $500 an hour. It's similar, similar to, I think, to law firm models. Um, in Although, the flat fee space, we it's common we see typically $5,000 to $10,000 for a flat fee financial plan. And um, when you see those numbers, it's actually that's sort of the reason why most brokerage reps actually don't generate that much revenue. But you'll see that that flat fee um, that's that's common. That's I would say that's the standard range is five thousand to ten thousand dollars for a flat fee financial planning agreement. Um, and yeah. And finally, do do financial planners give the consumer a choice? Do you want to go on commission, non commission? Do you want me to bill you hourly? The movement. Well, it's, it's, I think it's a mistake, but the movement in our industry has been to going to a pure model, that there's only one compensation model that's right for all consumers, and that, that would be the flat fee or the hourly billing model. It's been a huge trend in our business, and I've, I've actually been like one of the few people I think who's outspoken in saying, that's just bad economics. That just doesn't make sense. You, and in many cases, it's better for the client to have multiple options. So in some cases, if you're doing flat fee billing and you're recommending that somebody has to go to a third party to buy an insurance product because they actually need that risk management tool, now they're paying twice. Um, so it's 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 a complicated business and it's not as simple as if people try to make it out like it's black and white and there's one, one model that's more moral than the others. And it just isn't the case. You've been listening to My Two Cents with financial advisor and planner, financial planner, J.R. Robinson. I'm Jessica Wani Rich. The topic of the show this week was how the sausage is made, an insider's guide to financial advice. And J.R., what do our listeners have to look forward to next time? So um, as even though I was long-winded, I, I think um, our audience can see I'm passionate about this subject. I want to keep going on this subject. Next week, we'll talk about more about how to choose a financial advisor, how to understand the ethics of their compensation model, how they're regulated, and how to determine um, whether an advisor might be good a good fit for a consumer or not. After that, we're going to do a show on uh, the, for the DIY space um, on the FIRE movement, which is um, the financial independence retire early uh, movement. And so it's a, a popular DIY topic. That's the show after that. Thank you for tuning in this week to My Two Cents. Be sure to join J.R. Robinson and Jessica Lonnie Rich again next Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time and 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Until we talk again, aloha. <laughs>